Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. All right, we're back from the weekend and back and ready to go talking movies. Welcome back around for another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, the podcast, the movie podcast from Paul Bunyan Broadcasting. Welcome aboard. I'm Joel Hoover. How come you always start the show, Hoover? I don't know. Did you want to open the show? We no. could we could retape this. I want Rick and Nick to show up, but apparently they're really on summer vacation and they're taking it quite seriously. Have you heard where they are? I think it involves something about bad sunburn and I can't reach the aloe on the back part of my back and apparently it's taking really, really long to get that all patched up. Somehow this sounds a little bit familiar. I think they've been down this road before. What better place in the summertime than two movie guys than to spend time in a darkened, air-conditioned theater with adventures right in front of you? Like Bemidji Theater. You'd think that going to the film festival in France and the beaches there would take care of their need for sun, but apparently not. Well, apparently they got hung up in a post-World Cup Viva La Soccer riot. I think so, yeah. I, I think I, I think that's a very good guess as to where they are. Stuck in some celebration in Paris or somewhere else in France, celebrating France winning the World Cup yesterday. I think that would settle it. I'd yeah. say I saw a picture taken down the Champs-Elysees. You can't even see oh. the Eiffel Tower from all the oh, smoke my from word. the party yeah, fires. The, the <laughs> evening party at the Champs-Elysees was just unbelievable yesterday. It was it was incredible, but they, they are no doubt still celebrating today for round number two or waiting for the team to get home and give them a hero's welcome. So no doubt about that. But we're talking movies here, and it's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, which is sponsored by the Bemidji <laughs> Theater <laughs> with trumpet fanfare included in everything. The Bemidji Theater, great place to go catch a movie. They have $5 movie nights on Tuesdays that you can go to. $5 to see a film. They've got some food specials that they do that evening as well. Plus, they are in our Big Deals online store as well, so you can get movie certificates to go see them. Remember, with some movies, you may have to wait about two weeks in order to use those certificates, but you get a couple of dollars saved if you use those movie certificates, and you can do that through our Big Deals online store at paulbunnybroadcasting.com. I'll tell you what, some of the best moments of summertime live on those screens yes. at the Bemidji Theater. Missy and crew, they'll take good care of you. All right, so we've got a, another Fix-It round going yes. on today. This is Volume 3 for Fix-Its. It's been a little while since we've gone down this road, but we have some fresh ideas on things that we would fix in the movies. We'll explain what a Fix-It episode is in case you haven't heard one before coming up later. Well, technically we did when we came up with a whole new rating system for critiquing a movie. That's kind of a Fix-It episode, I, I, I guess. I guess that was. In a way, in yeah, a way. Yeah, it hasn't been as long, perhaps, because that was a new, fresh idea. You can't complain unless you can come up with some solution, a better way to fix it. That's a great way to put it, Dave. But first... Let's get topical. Yes, let's get a little bit topical of what's going on currently. Dave, you came in with a couple of ideas uh, for this. Where do you want to start well let's start with you know ant-man and the wasp doing pretty good at the box office it's not going to be box office king you know i think the avengers already managed that right off the bat but that's the other thing with the 
with a bad taste, I guess you could describe it as that, left in the mouth as of a lot of people after Avengers Infinity War. So this is the first Marvel movie with some of those Avengers to come back since that, just a couple months ago. What kind of a fall-off might we see, or would there be a fall-off? And evidently, not any fall-off at all. No, it had a good opening weekend. Now, I will say there's... A great review, stellar reviews. Yeah, the reviews were very good, and, and one of the things that was said was, this is a palate cleanser yeah. after <laughs> your most recent Avengers movie, Infinity War. This was a big palate cleanser. It was... What I've heard was even the villain storyline was merely a distraction. That was a sidebar. This was just a fun movie, super fun. They got back to that. They kind of needed that after how heavy Infinity War was. And they did well the opening weekend to the tune of $75.9 million. Now, it is worth pointing out a massive drop-off to the second weekend. 62% drop-off at the box office for Ant-Man and the Wasp. The second, the, the largest second weekend drop-off for a sequel within Marvel's universe. I think that's very worth pointing out. Just $29.1 million here this second weekend. You should point out anything considered over a 50% drop is a big drop. They're going to be a big drop, but once you go over 50%, then it starts to become a noticeable drop. And this was 62. Yes, that's, that's definitely worth pointing out. Really good point. So, big drop off the second weekend, but reviews have been very good. Um, and the opening weekend pool was good. I'm curious to see what kind of legs it's going to have moving forward because it did well initially, but as far as a, a mass of people who want to go and check this out, it, it's not held steady so far. So we'll and, see how, and how that goes. I would think that with the people with this bad taste after Avengers, there probably are groups of people that I'm never going to go see it. So they won't go, and maybe they'll be missing out on a really good movie, and that's maybe the case. But it sounds like everyone that has seen it has liked it. Stay for the credits. That's all we'll say. But there's there's that. I mean, it could have been doom and gloom, you know. What else are you looking at? Uh, let's talk about Indiana Jones. Yes, in they're the working news on, a little bit. They're working on number five, Harrison Ford. I told you when they had him sign up to do Han Solo in The Force Awakens, I knew there would be some sort of a package deal. All right, I'll tell you what. If you do Han Solo, we'll bring Indiana Jones back. The question is, when the heck are they going to get around to it? As of now, they delayed it again another year. It looks like the year 2021. Harrison Ford just this week turned 60, no, he turned 75, 76, 76. He's going to be about 80 years old by the time, literally, by the time he gets around to filming this thing. Now, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out in 2008. They filmed it in 2007. He was an older guy at that point anyway, and he could still do it, but you could see he lost a step. You start losing steps quite rapidly when you get to this point in age. Oh. He got his leg broken just walking through the door of the Millennium Falcon. Now, granted, it fell on him or something, but there's that, you know. So I give him all the credit in the world. Harrison Ford is the man. No disrespect. But honestly, an 80-year-old man, I mean, people get on the Rolling Stones for pushing it too far. You don't want to see him go out like, say, Jerry Rice, who was a great athlete in his prime, but at the end it just got sad. I don't want to see that. No, and not with something like the Indiana Jones movies, which require a lot of you physically as it is. So I I think it would be in their best interest to find somebody who can carry on the Indiana Jones name, or maybe they go back in time a little bit, rather than call it Indiana Jones 5. Think about it. Temple of Doom came prior yeah. to... 
Raiders of the Lost Ark in terms of uh, chronology and everything. So why not maybe do that with somebody different who could take on the Indiana Jones name and carry it on? I think it's worth exploring at this point for Steven Spielberg, for those who are going to be helming this movie. I really do think it'd be in the best interest to maybe go that route, especially because it felt like with Crystal Skull, whatever whatever you want to say about that movie, it felt like we got an end point with Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood and so on and so forth. You know, and I will say one other thing. I mean, the, the whole age thing, I want to see this done well. I want to see Indy shine like he should. Yes. But here's another thing people really aren't talking about that you don't think about. This has always been a three-way tripod. It's been Harrison Ford, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, who is now completely out of this thing. Now, granted, he sold his rights to Lucasfilm, sure. Yes. But here's a guy that helped. He developed the character. He created the character. It was sort of his takeoff of James Bond mixed with a lot of those old serials from the 30s, and he talked to his buddy Spielberg on a Hawaiian vacation, and hey, they're into the business together. He's so out of this, and he was considered by many the weak leg of the tripod with Crystal Skull that he's completely out of this altogether, whether it's Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Lucas is done. You know, and no one seems to be mentioning this at all. No. You know, and you wonder if that's like, look, let's just, if he's gone, he's gone. That's good. Let's just not, let's not hype it because we saw what happened last time. Just something to bring up, something to think about. Yes. All right. Any other topical items that are coming to mind? Yeah, there's the one. You know, we got a lot. We talked about the, the palate cleanser from the Avengers with Ant-Man and the Wasp and a lot of fans that are norked off. We've got something that's going on now that is really, just, just to touch base on it real quick, just vitriol and acid and real cesspool of negativity among some of the fan bases. Star Wars in particular, a lot of fans not thrilled with The Last Jedi. You know, you and I are fans. We had our issues with it, but we're certainly not lobbing, you know, hate bombs to the filmmakers. Oh, or saying, I want a rewrite and a remake and trying to crowdfund a remake. Yeah, come on, guys. This, we get, we could do better than this. But it, it, I'll, I'll put the cap around it, really, is what it is. So Ryan Johnson, who directed this, he got onto Twitter and he's chit-chat. And he's taking it with pretty good spirit. Then there's a guy, Christopher McQuarrie, who's been tied in with Brian Singer, the Mission Impossible movies, which, by the way, have a new one coming out that looks really good. We'll get really, to that really in a good. moment. We'll get to that. Um, so they got chit-chatty together, those two guys, on Twitter, along with the fan base, and the fan base just opened up a can of whoop-out, and it got ugly to the point where Macquarie, which a lot of people would say, I'd love it if Macquarie, with what he's done with Mission Impossible and other things, if he would get into Star Wars, but because of one night on Twitter... He basically said, there's no way I'm ever going to wade into this. So the problem is when you get a fan base like this that's lobbing everything at everybody, a lot of the stars are getting off of social media because of the hate. Jar Jar Binks, say what you want of him, but Ahmed Best, who played that character, it was a digital character, but he was on set, he all but almost committed suicide, it came out, because of the backlash he got. At some point, we have crossed a line and I think that line is way in the rearview mirror. And not only that, if we're scaring away guys like Christopher McQuarrie, good quality filmmakers from great franchises where they could do nothing but good, we've got a problem because if they're not going, if they're going to make more Star Wars movies either way, and none of the good guys want to get into it, that's when the hacks start coming in, and you're really going to see Star Wars take a tumble. We've got a problem here. So to those that might be lobbing issues at the filmmakers. 
you hear what I did there? Take a breath. Relax. Way easier said than done with these super fans. It mm. is it's clear. It's just way easier said than done. And there is no real way to slow this down in terms of the way that people respond on social media and the vitriol that exists. That's that's just part of our culture in twenty eighteen. Yeah. Look at how poison political talk has become and political culture. It's just ridiculous and that shows even more so sometimes in the movies sometimes less so because people are nuts when it comes to politics it 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 just is showing up everywhere the sports world is another prime example with how crazy people are when it comes to letting their opinions show so i i'm like you dave i'm i'm an idealist and i would like to see this change and this improve and get better but people are just nuts and if the mob the mob wins as well, the, to to somewhat quote Dan Barrero, the mob always wins in 2018. That's but when just the, how it goes. When the mob wins, something else loses, and it might yep. just be common sense, and sanity, sanity. Yeah, and yeah. Let's let's think before we just plunge in, shall we? You've got something. Couple of things going on. First, top of the box office for this past weekend, Hotel Transylvania Three. Did still not see that coming. Going strong, 44.2 million at the box office this past weekend. Skyscraper. What a shocker. Underperformed. $25.6 million at the box office. Incredibles 2 has done awesome. Just super, super business. We talked about that last time that we were on here. Um, and all of that to say that it has been a really, really good year at the box office. And a really, really good quarter at the box office. 2018 has had yearly grosses topping $6 billion. That is a 10% jump over 2017, and an 11% jump over the record year that 2016 had, um, and has now already brought us, it had the second largest first quarter ever during the first quarter of the year, and now a record second quarter with record months in April and June. People are hitting the movies hard this year and really coming out in full force with a mix of big tentpole films and even some ones that have been surprise sleeper hits like A Quiet Place, for example. So, it's been a great, great year at the movies. Um, obviously, a, a lot of sequels have contributed to this, but we are getting some uh, some clever new ones that are coming along into the mix, and it's been a great year at the movies so far, and that is extremely encouraging to see. And even though we have it, we will get around to it when we get closer to the end of summer, but we will do a fall preview. But what I can tell you, there are some really cool movies coming out this fall and early winter that people are already looking forward to. Um, 2018 might come out as a high mark spot with uh, with movies, and funny to note, not one DC movie in the bunch, but Marvel. I mean, the Avengers—that's a huge Super Bowl of a movie. Say what you want about what it was, but I mean, that did gonzo business, and it's a summer movie that wasn't quite out in the summertime, but kind of unofficially kicked it off. So, I mean, it, yeah, it's been a good year as, as a parent that has to pick my battles now as to which movies I get to see. It's been tough because there's a whole bunch, even the Mr. Rogers documentary. I want right. to see it. That's right. I want to see it before I go see Ant-Man and the Wasp. So that's a good thing when there's so many choices. I don't know which to see first. Exactly. Yeah, so you, you've got a lot of choices. There are a lot of choices across many different age levels, and it's all you could ask for. And there's still good stuff to come. You would hope still good stuff to come. Among them, a movie that's getting great, great early buzz. Stellar early buzz. Stellar 
early buzz. Mission Impossible Fallout. The series continues to roll on. I've asked the question. This is number really six, need... right? Yeah. I think. Three, then there was a Ghost Protocol, then there was uh, uh, Rogue Nation. Yeah, this is number six. I've asked the question, how many of these do we really need? Well, they keep redefining the action genre each time, and they have... They have given this series new life. It's almost like the Fast and the Furious movies, which yeah. midstream found a new direction to go, and it's kept bringing people back again and again, and they've done pretty well then critically as well. Mission Impossible is kind of going by the same formula. They hit a bit of a rut about midway through the series, but now have found a new sense of direction, and part of that is based around incredible stunts just remarkable stunts some are saying what fallout is going to bring to the table is going to be some of the best stunt work that's been ever been seen at the movies that's what some are saying the stunt work is icing on the cake and part of the thrill is that it's you know legitimate whether it's tom cruise hanging on the side of a plane for real uh whether it's him hanging onto the side of a building the burj real yeah over in dubai and we all got the we all saw the, the the stunt that went wrong that's in this new one where he jumps from one rooftop to another and didn't quite stick the landing broke his ankle that was done for real he had wires and stuff but he really did it and he really hurt himself but tom cruise isn't 21 anymore uh but he's also got a good crew around him it's funny it's fun it's fast-paced and it is smart they've, whip smart yep they've had a good formula to it so much so that even I, a staunch opposer to Tom Cruise movies <laughs> and a staunch opposer to the Mission Impossible movies because they kind of ruined where things had been with the television show with uh, the character of Jim Phelps and everything and, and turning his character around in a bad way. And I love the television show. I'm actually very curious about going and checking out these movies going back through the series and maybe going to see the new one in theaters. Have you not seen any of them before? No, I haven't. I've seen pieces of them, but I've not seen the full thing. I'll tell you what, for those of you that are listening in, they kind of started off on a bad foot with the original one, the one from 95 or whenever it was. It wasn't a bad movie, but like you said, it just, it wasn't Mission Impossible. The second one was an action movie, not a Mission Impossible movie. Start with Mission Impossible 3. This is where J.J. Abrams got involved as a producer and a director. He's been involved with all of them since. Because people were kind of asking at that time, do we need more of this? And then they found their way. Yeah, they figured out how to do this and do it correctly. Because Mission Impossible is not about bullets and explosions. It's about outsmarting the bad guys. That's right. That's Mission Impossible. It's not James Bond. It's a very different kind of thing. And ever since the third one, They've nailed them, and I will loan them to you if you'd like them. That would be great. There's a reason I don't yeah. have one and two. I have all the others, and I'm not planning on getting the others. All right, let's move on to our topic of the day. I think we've we've gotten enough in terms of current topics to to get into here to start things off. We've got we've we've gotten the I guess the appetite wetted here a bit. So let's get into our main discussion point for today. This is Fix It Volume Three, and what this is. Basically, this is an episode for Dave and I to come up with ideas on things that we would fix within the movies. These can be super, super general ones. Like, this is something we would change about the movie industry. This is something we would change about going to the movies. This, You could come up with something really broad like that. Or something as specific as, I would recast somebody in such and such movie, which is part of one that I've got coming up for today's Fix It. Um, or I would I would change direction on this movie, or I would set this movie in a different setting. Different things that we would fix within the movies. This can be past, this can be present, this can be future. Whatever you'd like. 
you could come up with an idea on something you would fix in the movies. I've got three of them. Do you want to start? How many do you have? I picked up a couple, but well, you can do two, three each. It's fine. Please, you lead off since I let off the show, and I always lead off the show. Okay. And you are, apparently are wanting a little bit of a change of direction with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with a real small, real simple one. See, I, I, I still have my DVDs. I'm not getting rid of them for a long time. I do also stream, but a lot like Netflix. If you're on Netflix, there's some good movies on Netflix, but about probably 80% of the stuff that's on Netflix are stuff I've never heard of before, direct-to-video, and then you watch it, you're like, yeah, that, that wasn't even... Even some of the documentaries. I was flipping channels and landed on a... Or flipping through Netflix and landed on a... Bigfoot documentary that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Here's some guy, yeah, I'm walking down the, 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 the woods and I got lost and I could smell something. I know it was Sasquatch. You did, did you see anything? No. Did you see any footprints? No. But I know it was, I mean, there was a movie equivalent to that. All the Sharknados are there, you know. But you don't have any of those really good movies from the past in abundance. I mean, these movies that their time is done. People aren't necessarily you know, buying out the DVDs like crazy. They're not at the box office anymore. Uh, for a while, they had J- the Jaws movies out there. Awesome. Get movies like that. How about Inner Space? They had that for a while. Those things are gone. And if where they are, there's a handful of them in a giant basket full of other stuff. I would like to fix and have Netflix better yet fix this ratio and get some better older movies that are in there. I love this idea because or, I've wondered the same thing. Or you tag the movies that are direct releases to video or Netflix. Now, now, I'm not talking Netflix originals. That's different. I mean movies that never went to see a big screen anywhere that was not just the premiere, that went directly to the Redbox bin, the $5 bin, because that seems to be the majority of what is on Netflix. Now, I'm not knocking them. They've got some great original stuff. They've got some great movies that are there, but the ratio is off. It is, and I think that Netflix has kind of lost their way a little bit in this sense because they almost have an an overabundance of content, original content Netflix does, in terms of movies and in terms of television shows to the point where... I think there's too much out there but to is take there, in. Is and, there such a thing? Well, that's just it. There, I don't think there is such a thing. And yet, what kind of listenership and viewership are they really getting from their subscribers for each of these different shows and movies that they put on there that are original series? They they have just exploded with that content. But I think that, that there's too much to it. I think they need to, to simmer down on the amount of content, make it a little bit more... A little bit more focused, I would say, in terms of selectivity in how much they create that's their own. And, like you said, bring in some more older content, especially older movies. I I think having a greater selection of that would be nice. They used to have a, a better, older selection, but I think it would help them in terms of more exclusive original content. Because right now, I think there's a, a distinct haves and have-nots. There are there's some great original Netflix series that they have on there. House of Cards, um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Stranger, Stranger Things. Things. Yeah, they, they've got some good ones on there. But they have a lot of bad ones or middling ones that are just like, are you serious? Yeah. You, you kind of give it a try and then you, you let it be. They gave that exclusivity deal to Adam Sandler who, you know, he right. did I think four or five Netflix movies and all every single one of them got Focus, big time. Focus your content a little bit better on your best stuff. Make it almost like a streaming version of prestige television almost, and then bring in more 
past content. Is that the direction you were thinking not, of going with it? Not necessarily a focus necessarily kind of thing. I mean, they gave the uh, they got Robert Redford and Jane Fonda back together, Our Souls at Midnight. That was a really good show. I'll bet you a lot of millennials aren't watching it, but a lot of older folks are. And it was a great show. I watched it. It was a movie about two widows, a widower and a widow, and they just decided, let's be friends and something more than that. It was, you know, why spend my life with waiting two? to die? With those two? Well, they've, got a, they've got a great track history. Yeah. They've already started together, so it's like getting Bogey and Bacall back together. But they do have the African queen up there right now. But you're not going to find anything by Alfred Hitchcock. You're not going to find a lot of those things. But you're going to find movies that you'd never heard of before, ever, in all categories. Not just unknown horror movies, but comedies that are not funny. And Is Sunset Boulevard still on? I don't think so. It was for uh, a long time before. No. I, I've been wanting to watch it again recently because Netflix was how I first watched Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. I was ready for my close-up, and I went and watched Sunset Boulevard, and it was, it was great. I kind of want to watch it again. And I knew Netflix had it, but oh, that's a bummer. You know, the funny thing is you got the categories, and now in the last maybe month I've noticed there's a new category, critically acclaimed movies. And when you go through that, it's ever, it's all the different genres, but all of them are pretty decent. They've got yeah. stories you've heard of, movies you've heard of, actors you've heard of, you know, and that's the only one. You go look under, say, I don't know, action movie, and the first ten, like, yeah, I heard that one. And then you start after ten. Never heard of that one. No. What in the world is this? Starring who? You know, I mean, all of these. They used to have a classics category, too, and they don't anymore. Let's just say truth in advertising. Let's put something here, some little, you know, snippet on the side. But I also think I brought it up in passing. One of the best things when there used to be video stores was you got to look at the box art. You got to look at this thing and turn it over. and Oh, yeah. There should be a little more of something like that. It should be something a little more like it was going to the video store to try to recapture that rather than a teeny postage stamp size picture that if you put the cursor over it something might pop up but there should be more to it than that yeah you know you should be able to select a preview or something out of something to make it more exciting because it kind of isn't and netflix could better that ratio too that's one of mine what have you got that's a really good one i like that a lot my first one, this is a totally unreasonable one that can never happen because it's something from the Perfect. past. Perfect. That's what we need. Exactly. Irrationality. Exactly. This is totally from the past. You mentioned Bogey and Bacall. <laughs> I, I loved that you mentioned Bogey and Bacall because this is the direction I'm going. I just watched them in a couple of movies, Dark Passage and Key Largo, and really enjoyed watching them together. I've not together. seen Key Largo yet. Good movie. I've heard, yeah. Yeah, very suspenseful with the way it all takes place in one setting. Um they're great together. Oh, I, love, yeah. I love watching the two of them together. They're just super with the chemistry they have and everything. There's a reason that Bogey and Bacall rolls off yeah. the tongue. They are like peanut butter and chocolate. Here's the thing, though. If I could go back, I would. I, I really do wish, and I know we talked about this during the Golden Age of Hollywood episode that we did in our last one. I would go back and I would fix the fact that stars were tied into studios so closely because I would want to see more crossovers of certain stars working with each other from especially the 40s. I mean, the 50s, thankfully, that started to happen a little bit more. Um, so actually, this this is kind of two sub-fixits within this one general theme. So I would have loved to see more of Katherine Hepburn and, and Humphrey Bogart together. Yeah. They did the African Queen together, and they were outstanding. I mean, you're bringing together... But that was about it. Yeah, you're bringing together two generational actors there for one movie. And a very good movie. They they were awesome in it. But that was their lone movie together. I, I wish there had been more of an opportunity for stars to cross over between studios like that and and to get to collaborate. 
And if there wouldn't have been, then I would have wanted to see more movies that would have pitted those particular characters into completely different roles than their general typecasts. Yeah. For instance, how great would it have been to see Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland up against each other in some way, shape, or form in a movie? I know, that that would have totally reshaped how yeah. America had fallen fallen in love with those two characters. Well, what if you put them up against each other in in completely different roles than the ones that they so often got typecast in together where maybe Mickey Rooney plays more of a bully character and Judy Garland is the one who get, gets picked on by that character and then they they maybe learn how to coexist, but they don't necessarily fall in love like like that childlike sense of love that they would sometimes have in their movies. Or what if, what if Lauren Bacall in this one role would be a little two-faced and stab Humphrey Bogart's character in the back in some way? And then that's where the movie ends almost. You know, think about it if they had reshaped it a little bit and taken these constant characters who you knew you could expect on the screen, but they went totally a different direction with the way that their characters interacted together. Same thing with like Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. What if they would have been cast in roles completely different from the oddball comedy movies that they did together um, that were that were very lovable? They're because, not in love, but maybe Warring Neighbors or right, something. Right, Warring Neighbors or something like that. Now, I know they kind of did that in Desk Set, but they ended up together at the end. Yeah. What if they don't end up together at the end? What if it comes to a head in some hilarious climax and it went a completely different direction. What if Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello break up at the beach? Right! Oh, man! <laughs> Changing the beach genre forever. Like, think about that. It would have been really unique, I think, because what was Alfred Hitchcock good at doing? He Alfred was Hitchcock, suspense. he was good at suspense. He had his way of doing movies. But he had some yet, comedy to him. And yet he flipped it on its head in a movie like Vertigo, in a movie like Psycho, where, spoiler... Spoiler, get ready for this. The One of the main characters gets killed in the middle of the movie in Psycho. Didn't see that coming. Well, you don't how, expect that based on what he's done before. You don't expect the second twist at the end either. But he right. also, he had a little bit of a gift for comedy. If you ever watch The he Trouble did. with Harry, it's it's an unusual British comedy. And it's not exactly a rip-roaring, you know, wah-ha-ha comedy. But it definitely throws murder on its ear a little bit and turns it into a sort of a comedy. So I would have wanted to see either the star duos broken up in favor of some cross-studio work, you know, pair up some of these great stars and and put them in different roles. Or if if they would have had these stars kept together, maybe put them into a different kind of role with each other and see how that would go. And I think it could have produced some, some really, really surprising movies to look back on. Obviously, they're great movies to look back on now that they were in. But it would have been kind of surprising. And, and kind of unique to see them in roles that went against character. How Hitchcock used James Stewart in Vertigo was a, a great example of that. Something yeah. completely different. He was an obsessive, off-the-deep-end oh, kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Yep, so that's that's a prime example. That's what made me think of it, was thinking about when I had just seen that recently, of this was a different James Stewart than, than the Jimmy Stewart that that America had come to love. So what if more of this had been done with some of the great duos, especially of the 40s. And forget, you know, well, this is my brand, and when you see a Bacall movie, you know what you're going to get because Lauren Bacall is kind of the same in all of her movies for the most part. 
But then every, when you get toward the end of the career and your brand doesn't matter as much because everyone's kind of seen it, that's a great time to shake it up. And Stewart would be a great example. Yeah. You know, by the 50s, he'd already had a really good career and he continued to have a good career, but he started to shake it up a little bit with Vertigo, playing a character not quite like he had done before. If not the same James Stewart from Rear Window. Yes. Before we continue, we want to remind you Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, and we love having them on board as the sponsor of this podcast. Great place to go catch a movie locally here in Bemidji, just across from the airport on Highway 2. It's the Bemidji Theater. All right, we've each had one. Dave, what's another one that you would fix? Ratings in two different ways. So movie ratings like RPG, that kind of thing. Now, we all know PG-13 was invented largely because of Spielberg. <laughs> Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, and Gremlins, they were both rated PG because there was no PG-13. And they were both a little on the intense side. You know, kids loved Indiana Jones, and then they go see Monkey Ball Soup, and they go to see Gremlins, and Gremlins is a, is a fun but sort of terrifying Christmas movie. And PG wasn't quite good enough. I mean, Jaws is rated PG. Yes. It's, it's yes. too soft for R, but it's too much for PG. So they came up with PG-13. I think we could do even better because we've got, even now, we've got um, some movies that are PG-13, but they're kind of a, a lame PG-13 or a harder PG-13. And then you have R. Well, it's an R or is it a hard R. It seems like we need some other kind of a rating where R should be hard R. You know, if it's an R-rated movie, there's no negotiation here, 17 Bottom line, end of story. It's a hard R. But what if we split PG-13, got rid of PG-13, and changed into two more? And I would just suggest like PG-12 and PG-15 because then you start getting into different things. PG-15, you're a 15-year-old kid. You're driving now or starting to learn to drive. At that point, you know, like a diehard movie, you know, it's not, it's violent. Yeah, there might be an Effenheimer in there, but I mean, it's not, you're in well, traffic you know you're now. One in those you're movies. in traffic now. You're yeah. going to be hearing it come through your windshield, I hate to say. So maybe get rid of PG 13 and split the, I know, and split it. So a PG 15 would be like a lot of the R movies now that really, you know, there's violence and there's language and maybe they should be something, but PG-13 is not strong enough a rating. R is too strong a rating, so maybe if you split 13 into 12 and 15, and I'm just coming up with those numbers. But there's an idea. So when you do get an R-rated movie, it's a hard R movie. And on top of that, re-rating some of the older movies and kind of retroactively rating them, like Jaws. When you go to see Jaws, if there's some... for some, I mean, how many parents brought their kids to see Deadpool because it was a comic book movie and they didn't pay any attention to the R? So maybe it doesn't matter. But how many parents are going to look at the back of the video box or whatever, or DVD or whatever, oh, it's rated PG, it can't be that bad. It is kind of intense. You know, I still say to this day... You know, I'm married. I have a mortgage. I still think Jaws is the scariest so movie I ever saw. So re-rate the old movies. Give them a retro rating. And only when, yeah. even now, they do do it only when a movie gets re-released. So if Jaws gets back into theaters, they will re-rate that movie. And there's no way it's coming out as a PG anymore. It'll probably come out as a PG-13 yeah. today. But it's not, it's, it's too strong for, you know, maybe even PG-13 is kind of eh. Yeah. But PG, definitely not. I think it's a good idea. I, I think... Adding two would get a little bit complex. What if it would be, let, like, let's say it's the movie rating equivalent of a one to five scale of sorts, where you have G, that'd be a one, you have PG as a two, you have PG-12, which I, I thought was a pretty good idea, as your three, PG-15 is, is your four, and then you make R 
a more restrictive category yeah. as a hard five. Yeah. And PG-15 would take maybe some of the lower-end R movies out of the equation. And even more so with the theaters, and in some theaters, depending on the theater, I know Bemidji Theater, some movies, you're not bringing your kid in here. This is a rated R movie, no. and you're not coming in. Other R-rated movies, okay, come on in. But I've gone to, say, a hard horror movie like Texas Massacre or something, and here comes little kids because the parents said, that's eh, okay. As another thing, I mean, for one, it's irresponsible, in my opinion. I mean, come on, you know. It's if you want to teach it to your kids, fine, that's your business. But you know, the other thing is just looking at it from a group mentality, you got little kids going into a horror movie, they're gonna freak out. You know, we're here to watch the movie. It's screaming at a movie theater is one thing, but really carrying on is another thing. And no, you're gonna stay through the movie. But I really want to go. Now you're distracting everybody, you know. Let's watch the movie. So if you got people you're gonna bring in, so if you do do a hard R and a hard R is a restrictive seventeen and we split the PG thirteen rating. There will be no kids under 17. I don't care what the parents say. If parents want to bring them in, well, then you can wait till it comes out on Redbox, and then you can rent it, and you can show them whatever you want. Yeah. But they're not going to come in here. End of story. And that should almost be a big sign in the front of every movie theater. That should be like a standard for all theaters. And like I said, I will give a lot of kudos to Bemidji Theaters, depending on how hard that R is. Some are coming in, and some are not. I completely agree. I, I think it's a great idea, something that... Honestly, feels like it could be really reasonable, and I, I wonder if maybe those within the movie industry will give a little bit more credence and thought to the way that that they work the rating system. Because we, I mean, we're seeing so many R movies these days, and R movies and PG thirteen movies. I think there is a bit of a sliding scale on them, depending on what end of the spectrum within that rating are they on. Could we add a rating in between those a little bit more that helps bridge the gap and differentiate a little better? And can theaters differentiate better with who they let in well, to see it? Think about some of the even the harder edge ratings. NC-17 kind of replaced triple X. Well, triple X you always think of as porn. But the NC-17 really means no children under 17. Isn't that really what R is supposed to be, restricted for those under 17? Right. What's, tell me, explain really. What's restricted? What's the difference between an R, no children under 17, and NC-17, which stands for no children under 17? It, NC-17 doesn't, it shouldn't necessarily be for porn. If you're going to put out porn, then it should be triple X, because that's what they still call it. It's its own thing, so you know what you're coming in for. But you don't run into that at Bemidji Theater. Or any other real theater that's not an adult theater. So that's right. its own category that's off on its own island somewhere. But if you get some you know, harder R, it should be its own version of NC-17, which doesn't mean necessarily strong sexual themes. It means there's stuff in this movie that kids under 17 shouldn't see. And sex may only be one of the things that you don't get to see. I'd much rather have it that porn didn't exist. Well, I'd rather have that. That's so. its own argument. Yeah. But it's, you know. Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah. but there's also the thing with not rated. Sometimes rather than get the, the, the infamous whatever rating, you know, some of the horror movies would have been rated X. So they just decided not to have them rated. Yeah. Then you should almost have a suggested rating. Uh, if this movie was rated, it would probably be a did 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 So at least you have an, well, this movie's not rated. It must be fine. No. Not, you know, Texas Massacre 2, not rated. But it would probably be a hard R. Yeah. No doubt. So... I like it, Dave. Another really good one. Yeah, Just a thought. Very good. And I think that could be implemented. Absolutely. And and especially for those that are older, those older movies. Yeah. Retroactive rating would be great. Yeah. You know, if you wanna if you wanna take the teeth out of your movie so that you can get a lower rating, so you know, like the last couple of diehard movies, they were PG thirteen because they wanted the kids to be able to come and see it. 
All right, so you have another category of R, you know, that works easier. And I don't think nowadays with the, in the era of Deadpool, that's going to keep people away. If it's a good movie, regardless of what the rating is, so long as it's not overly disturbing, you know, then there's that. But then you have to be completely representative because Temple of Doom, a lot of kids got messed up by the, the dinner buffet scene, you know. Uh, the Gremlins, it scared a lot of kids. You know, the cute little Mogwai, well, yeah, but there's a lot more than that. So let's be representative. Let's not be completely paranoid about this rating on this movie is going to kill the response from the audience crew as long as it's good. But we got to come up with a new version, I think. What do you got? Here's my second one. And I'm wading into some uncharted waters here because this is a topic of discussion, a movie genre that we haven't gotten into yet, but I, I think is on the docket for the future of one that we would like to get into. Romantic comedies, I think, need a reboot Oh, 2018. Yes. Oh, yes. Romantic comedies are are something that are hard for me to watch I, at times. Some in particular. But there are some that I really enjoy that are that are fun, that are entertaining, and that work for all people, all genders, all times. There, there are ones that work. There was an internet discussion going on yesterday uh, regarding the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. That's a good Which is one, a actually. very entertaining movie. That's based on Shakespeare. It is, and it's a rom com, and it's it's fun, and there's it's just a really yeah. enjoyable, entertaining movie. Um, and it was representative of how rom coms were doing in the '90s and early 2000s, which was great. Was that '98, '99? Yeah, '98, '99 in that there. range. They they were doing so well at that time. Romantic comedies were. Um, so many of them that, that were coming out, doing well at the box office, and people were entertained. Now you can hardly sniff a rom-com at the movies. They've gone away, yeah. They, they really have. You know what I think has been part of it? I think Hallmark Channel has been a big mm. part of it. Hallmark has gotten, I think, the corner taken up when it comes to romantic comedies and romantic movies. But they churn out... Easy, like easy Paint breezy. By numbers. Yeah, they just basically pad pad the numbers. Watch it on TV. It's easy to watch for somebody who's at home just wanting to flip something on TV. They just churn something new out all the time, and and I think that's part of it. I that this is just my theory. I don't know if anyone has talked about this at all elsewhere, or if there's any belief on that. But I think Hallmark has one thing to do with it. I think part of it too is romantic comedies lost the plot a little bit in terms of what made them work. And I was thinking about this in relation to another movie I watched just recently. You could call it a romantic comedy from the 1940s, and that was The Philadelphia Story, which then was remade uh, later on um, with with a different cast. With uh, um, It was Gene Kelly and uh, – no, it wasn't Gene Kelly. Um, because Grace Kelly was in it, Frank Sinatra, and who was the third one? I've not seen it. I don't know. You're um, on your own with this one. High Society was, was the movie. I uh, I keep forgetting who the third person in that mix was. Anyway, maybe it was Gene Kelly, but I didn't think it was both Gene and Grace Kelly. Anyway, um, High Society had uh, a, a great cast with Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, and they're they're super in there. And then James Stewart is in there as well. Um, great cast, great romantic comedy, um, and much like the romantic comedies of the modern day of the the nineties and early two thousands. You know, I, I already mentioned Ten Things I Hate About You. You could even throw something like While You Were Sleeping in oh, there. Sure. Or you could throw in um, a movie like uh, Notting Hill. Really, really good romantic comedy. What did those movies have? They had a combination of excellent writing. 
And writing that that didn't just look for slapstick laughs or didn't look for easy laughs like I think a lot of romantic comedies do these days. And I'm trying to look up high society at the same time as I talk about this so I can get this resolved. And here you know, it is. I think some of what Bing Crosby. Bing, Bing Crosby. Crosby. Here's the other one with Grace Kelly and with um with Frank Sinatra. So anyway, um remake on Philadelphia Story. So they had great writing that didn't try too hard to go for laughs. It was just witty. And you know why it was witty? It was witty because you had two leads or you had a series of leads who just had oozing chemistry together, outstanding chemistry together. Philadelphia story, like I mentioned, incredible chemistry between Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. They're just cracking the whip at each other in terms of the verbal barbs that they trade back and forth. And yet, you know that there's still love and appreciation between the two of them. 10 things I hate about you. It's just, I mean, it's, it's great chemistry between Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger with the way that they went back and forth in that movie. Um, same thing with Notting Hill. Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts just worked extremely well together. They they just were were perfect together in terms of a quiet quiet uh, book um, quiet guy who runs a bookshop and a an actress who's just on top of the world. And it it's just magic when you bring the two of them together. I think a, a bit of that's been lost. That that natural comedy that flows when you have two leads who work extremely well together and they're not trying too hard and they have a script that is that allows them to flourish in that and they're given roles that they just really get into. I think romantic comedies have really lost their way in that regard and honestly, I think there's room for for them to to still be good in in 2018 today because I think there's only so many cheesy Hallmark movies mm. that you can watch before it's time to say, "All right, let's see something that's a little bit new or different." Well, why not cast some of your big actors and actresses of the day, maybe even people who are outside of the rom-com genre, into a role that suits them really well and opposite somebody who they just take off with together in terms of the way that they that they jive with each other and let them run with it. You know, I think a lot of, I think you're right. I think part of the problem was uh, a lot of those formula comedies, and they were very formula comedies. It was insert so-and-so here. Let's get a good. Let's get a story that works, and then let's That's throw where it in. Went wrong. Then let's get the brand in there. Whether it was you know Julia Roberts, lovable neurotic, or Meg Ryan, who was the queen of rom coms for a long time. Oh she, yeah, in the nineties, syrupy, yeah, sweet. Every but every role that those gals would play, and Sandra Bullock would play, and they were all into those. They were almost the same all the way through. It was exactly the same character. Maybe the the story was different. Yeah, I didn't. But the 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 things, the the tellings of the characters were the same from movie to movie to movie, featuring those particular actresses. Yeah, I didn't even get into things like You Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, What Women Want, stuff from the '90s that just was churning out all the time. Some of those though were pretty good. I mean, you get uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They had a really good thing going. They did. You know, Joe versus the Volcano was not a good movie. But they were fun to watch together, and Meg Ryan plays three different parts in that movie. Something kind of fun. But you know, where uh, you get, uh, uh, you've got mail. It's actually kind of a fun movie. It's a remake of Shop Around the Corner. It's fun. It's nothing special, but it's a couple of steps above what you'll find on Hallmark. But they, but they let the chemistry of yeah. the people who were in that's the what, top spot work, and that's within what made a script it work. that allowed for that to flourish. Yeah, but when the script is paper thin and there's nothing to it, and you see every, you know, they're going to wind up together. That's not exactly a plot twist. No. But everything else that's going on, when there's nothing there, 
then there's no point in watching. You know, at this one point, you don't care enough about the story to care about the characters. Right. That's what you see on Hallmark. You know, they've got Christmas movies playing even now in the middle of summer. Enough, 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 enough. I think there's room, though. There's absolutely it's still to be done. There's absolutely room, and there's room for what they're doing on the Hallmark Channel. But that's all that you're seeing with romantic comedies nowadays. And, you know, let's throw something on there that's got something more than two dimensions to it. But goes back to its roots. Yeah, a little bit, get so. us a good story that's not paint by numbers. That is only dependent on what lead actor or actress we're going to get in here, and get that Hugh Grant. What other character has he ever played aside from the philandering boss of Bridget Jones? Every other movie is the same character. Pretty simple guy. Yeah, pretty yep. simple stuttering, uh, uh, stuttering uh, uh, guy. You know, because that's level. You know. Yeah. Eh. All right, we've each got one more. Dave, what do you have? I came up with a really good idea. Okay. Now you, I was, you've had two really good ideas already, so I'm curious. I got into a chit chat about horror movies with a friend of mine, and there's a lot of cliches in horror movies that need to be broken up. You know, and basically a lot of horror movies or suspenseful movies operate on the idiot palindrome. You know, if you yes. there's only there's only way this story is going to work is if the whole story is populated by idiots. Why don't you do this? Why would you do this and not that? Why are you do a lot of that stuff where people watching are very intelligent? Why would somebody that is smart do something like that? What if you remove the intelligence necessarily? And instead, people get stuck in a situation because despite them knowing better, they're not able to do it. Here's where we go. You can make it sort of a, a parable alongside of something else. How many amputees do we have? How many war or walking wounded veterans do we have that have lost arms and legs and stuff? Let's say there's some sort of a retreat and people with their physical limitations cannot get away from the place, cannot run down the road to go ask for help, cannot escape the situation. They're there. Maybe the power's out, the cells are gone, whatever the case, and now they have to rely on their own wits. They can't run up the stairs. They can't climb up on the roof to get away from the pack of marauding dogs or whatever it is. doesn't have to be a psycho killer kind of movie either. It can be a survivalist kind of a thing. You know, Why would you do this? Because they can't help it. Now, whether it's physical limitations... People got on there's – a, there's a comedy that if you actually give it the chance, it's actually a better comedy than you think it would be called The Ringer. And being as it stars Johnny Knoxville, yes. a lot of people probably don't want to give it. But it's actually a pretty good comedy, and most of the cast are real, honest-to-goodness, developmentally disabled people. But they're not something to be poked fun at and laughed at. They've got the best lines in the movie, oh, they, they and they're poking fun at everybody lines. else. Yep. So let's turn things around. Let's give strength – and not the weakness. Let's let these limitations be things to be overcome and not limit you. So whether you're not physically able to, you know, get in the wheelchair and wheel it down the muddy, rutted road to help to get away from the whatever, it's not an option. Well, there's there's a great present day example of that, and that's in a quiet place. They have a deaf character yeah, exactly. in that movie, and and her limitation is used in a way. As a strength. As a strength and that's in what that I'm, movie. That's, that's what we're that's going for. That's a great for. example. So you come up with something, whether it's a mental disability or a physical disability, and it's not. It's brought up as a challenge, but it's looked at to be overcome. And not only that, one of the things with, say, even slasher movies, you come up with characters, not the ones you want to root for, but the ones you want to watch get offed. It's the complete opposite. You have a sympathy for these folks that you don't want to see it happen, but you know in a movie like this, not everyone that's in the real one is going to make it to real five. Yeah. You don't want want to see the really cool guy that you know the, the war veteran that helped everybody in iraq isn't going to make it out of the movie not a chance oh no you actually feel dread for who's going to get it and any one of them could be the one you i think know that's what I, mean? I think that's a great idea it would 
it would fight against general perceptions of what people in these kinds of situations can and can't do. And it would do so in a way that that has you pulling for them to find a way out. Because what is it about horror movies, Dave? They're looked at as no-win scenarios yeah. all the time. It's, what, it's the last keep, one standing. You keep that no-win scenario in play, and yet you have a real emotional pull now that goes beyond just, oh, this person's just a dumb jock or an idiot. Who, yeah. You know this person's They're idiot all typecast. It's, hey, I, I really, really want this person to make it out alive here. I really want them to get out of this and find a way, some kind of ingenuity to get out of this. Are they going to? Or is it like some horror movies where... There is a no-win scenario where it just does end and... Nobody wins. Nobody wins. It just ends horribly in some way. Do you want the icing on the cake here? Sure. You make it a summer camp for disabled. Let's just... We'll keep the camp metaphor because there's so many of those in horror movies. And you have, like, the counselor. The one guy that's totally fully there. He's physically strong. He's mentally strong. And he is. He comes across as the hero character. And but he's the first. Is the first to go. the first to go. He's got every opportunity to you know use his strengths against him, and he does the dumbest things, and he's the first to go. Now you got all these people that really depend on this guy. Or maybe now they got to do it on their own. Or maybe it's a well-intentioned person, or somebody who you would think would be fine through all this, but is the first to go regardless. Maybe and, yeah. And then you've got. I think that's really unique. I, th- I think that's really unique, and it, again, it, it changes the spectrum of how you're how you're rooting for the characters within a horror movie. Now, this is like a one shot deal. I don't think you could do a whole bunch of these. You can't do, you know, Disabled Camp Two. No, but it'd be it'd be really innovative. But yeah. something like A Quiet Place, something like this, something where you know it's not the stereotypes anymore. You got to come up with other reasons as to why better intelligent options don't work. You know, why aren't you running upstairs? Oh, that's right. We trapped that wolf up there and it's, it could be loose, you know, so you don't want to get up there with it. You got to stay on this floor where the monsters are coming through the windows. You, you know, there, there's a power outage. The truck hit the power tower and all the electricity is gone. And am I not getting a cell signal? Are you getting a cell? No, I'm not getting. So, I mean, a lot of those things you need to just kind of cut the legs out from under them. So it really is you and the elements and not because stupid people, you have to give them other challenges. That's very creative. I think that's a really, really creative idea. And so there it, you go. It would infuse some new life in a genre that that does in its own ways continue to come up with new things all the time. But that would be especially creative. And again, it would fight against typecasts in oh, its yeah. own way and, and do so in a way that is really compelling and would make for a pretty entertaining movie. It doesn't even have to be a horror movie. It could be uh, Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin in The Edge. Great movie crash land in the wilderness and i have no legs how am i gonna walk out of here yeah you know that would be another really good idea suspense yeah yeah Dr- drifted into the suspense category i, I think that's a, a really really good thought give me your last shot here Hoof. all right my last one zeroes in on a movie that is that is really contentious there are some people who love this movie i have a very good friend back home who is such a huge fan of this movie and yet there are other people who despise this movie is this death of smoochie no. Oh, okay. I'm talking about Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby. Oh, okay. A movie that, wouldn't you agree, it's pretty contentious. Critically, it was contentious. Some said, wow, what a what a novel concept. Others said, what the heck was this? I think with Baz Luhrmann, you're gonna get, you know what you're getting. Yeah. You know, if you look at any of his movies, you know what you're getting. So when they announced that he was going to do Great Gatsby, and I like the book. I like the Robert Redford version of his uh-huh. the movie he did in the late 70s or whenever yeah. it was. 
Those are good movies. This one was way over the top, extremely stylistic, but that's exactly what you knew you were going to get. If you saw Moulin Rouge and thought, oh, he'll dial it back, you don't know what you're talking right. about. And- that being the case, it was fine. I thought it was good. It's like Quentin Tarantino doing anything. You know what you're going to get. It was fine, and yet we're talking about a classic of American yeah. literature. Shouldn't we get a classic cinema film for a classic of American literature? But must it be like shoot by numbers? If if we're talking about the Roaring Twenties and Great Gatsby is a time of excess and he you know personifies that, then in a lot of ways the way that it was shown only personifies that. It did. And yet I think there could have been a really creative way to do this movie. Yeah. And, and more make grounded. it something that would be more grounded and perhaps would stand the test of time as far as looking back on what a movie it was while mixing together its its themes of excess and and still be a movie that would do great justice to the book. And here's here are a couple of the thoughts that I had on that. Number one. Yeah, you get a point. It doesn't really seem like it takes place on Earth that, right. I, that I know. Right. It's a little over the top. Number one, I, I would have scaled back a little bit on the opulence of it all in favor of the dialogue. And, and that would include a more limited soundtrack. I would have really thrown my weight into the soundtrack of the parties and in terms of what they did there. Like actual vintage stuff? Yeah, a little bit more actual vintage rather than that blend of modern and vintage that they went with, which produced some pretty entertaining songs and some pretty entertaining set pieces. But I would have gone a little bit more vintage with the music for starters. And I would have only done that during the parties. I would have limited all other soundtrack work during the rest of the movie. You keep it for the parties and you you create that juxtaposition between the mirage – of the parties and the reality of everything else, I, I would have really differentiated. That's the way, I like how you two. put that. The mirage of the parties, right? I get that. Along with that, I would have made the parties, and I would have made some of the more opulent moments of the movie in color. I would have then had some of the more bootlegging portions of the movie in sepia tone, mm. and I would have had everything else in black and white. Speaking of stylistic, you've got some. Uh, you got a vision right. here. Who think about the Wizard of Oz? What's yeah. what's part of what makes the Wizard of Oz great? That I'm juxtaposition pick- of color. I'm that picking takes up what you're laying there. down. I would have done the same thing with the Great Gatsby. It would have been entirely unique. It would have been different. It would have been maybe in some ways revolutionary in terms of the the present day. I mean, why did people love the artist a couple of years ago when it came along? Yeah. Because it was a black and white silent film, and nobody does those anymore. I would have mixed in some elements like that within The Great Gatsby where you change the color and you even have like a transition. Like if you go into a scene where the party is going on, you just see this transition take place out of the black and white and into the color. Or if you're going into the bootlegging scenes, I know I know there's a, a little bit of that that gets mixed in. You go into a sepia tone there. You, you go into essentially a different world within The Great Gatsby every time that you go to these different places. And and I would have wanted that to be reflective, like even. Would you go so far as to have an actual live piano player in the theater, like they used to do back in the day, where he would put for the maybe, before they were talking, right. you know? Maybe for the premiere. For the maybe a, yeah. maybe like select theaters, you know? Or or you have a very limited soundtrack for certain, uh, or a limited um a limited score for certain portions of the movie. Like imagine Gatsby looking across the lake, and it's black and white. And suddenly Just you see green. one green light, much like the the bit of red 
in Schindler's, Schindler's List. list yeah. Something a little bit like that. Okay. And then you have maybe one sole piano playing just a few small bars underneath of it all. Adding a little bit more... I think the stylistic idea was uh, was a thoughtful one, and yet it was a misguided one with the way Baz Luhrmann did it. I would have done that completely different stylistically. Here's maybe the biggest one of all. I would have recast Daisy, and I would have put together DiCaprio and Kate Winslet again on screen. I know that's a bit of a big one. I know that's a big one, but I, I think it would have worked really well. I think... Uh, Unless you think it's too much with Titanic and all that they have in terms no, of history, no, no. there it's, it's not that. It's I think Kate Winslet. I don't think of her as meek. Daisy's kind of a meeker character. Kate Winslet is an actress. She's much stronger than that. I mean, not just roles from Titanic, but everything she's ever been in. She. I don't think we can you know victimize, so to speak. And yet, that's a change in casting. It would be a big it, change it would in be casting. A really big one. But I think it would be for the right kind of person who would be able to pull that off, though. And maybe would lend a little bit more to the character than than previously thought. Or it's like, wow, this is something totally different, seeing Kate Winslet like this, yeah. in this kind of setting, with this kind of characterization. Yeah. there's. I mean, it certainly could be done. I think with... Um, I don't know how the movie came together, whether somebody was putting it together and then brought it to Baz Luhrmann or was Baz starting it himself. Oh, I also probably would have recast Nick Carraway, not go with Tobey Maguire. Yeah. I think the reason he got in was because behind the scenes, he and uh, and uh, Leonardo are good buddies. Okay. So I think that had something to do with it, maybe. Uh, yeah. that There was a lot of good about that movie. I think my wife really likes that movie. I think it's okay. Baz Luhrmann is like um, having cake for dinner. You know, it's awfully sweet. You know, you need a little yeah. more substance. Um, but, but whether you're talking about that or Moulin Rouge, I think some things it works for, some things it doesn't work for. We went and saw that in the theater. We've got it at home. Um, it's not a bad movie. It's over the top. But I think you have to know that going in. But see, I think that that over the top should have been more selective within the movie. Yeah, I hear the, what you're That saying. over the top feeling. They, yeah. they just made it. Too stylistic in ways that it shouldn't have been, and and the visuals. I mean, you could tell that some of those parts were just CGI all the way. Yeah. And I think I, I think they could have made a really transcendent movie for a transcendent book if they had changed the way that stylistically they would have focused on on displaying the movie. I think they should have put their efforts to that end into other areas of the movie. Some of the thoughts that I had previously. And I know I'm getting super specific with That's picking okay. out one movie, okay. but it's but it's a movie that that is so contentious. I mean, some people love it, some people hate it with the way that it was made, and the critics were sharply divided when it came to that too. Well, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who is a Minnesotan, by the way, it's one of the great books of literature. I mean, yes. come on, The Great Gatsby is up there with Grapes of Wrath and Tale of Two Cities. I mean, it's, it's up there, you know. And so when you're going to take something like that, you're already taking sacred property. You want to see it well represented. And a lot of people, whether they had to read it in school or they just picked it up at their grandparents' house or whatever, most people have read it or at least know a little bit about it. And a lot of people already have an opinion about it. So if you found out they were going to remake The Wizard of Oz, which was a book first, by the way. And then was made into a movie that's a classic Same movie. with Gone with the Wind. Same with Gone with the Wind. So these are movies that were done at one point, a marvelously well done thing. Now, the Robert Redford movie, maybe people didn't see it, but the movie itself wasn't, you know, it's best known as a book. 
and it's got a couple of adaptions, yeah. and they probably did a TV movie at some point, too. It's not that you're trying to remake a one that was already perfectly done, like Wizard of Oz, where just don't touch that one anymore. It was well done. Even if it is, you know, 80 years old almost, leave it alone. It's the original work is so sacred, you better do respect to it, and maybe yes. he put too much nitro in the tank. Take it from another recent example from even earlier this year, A Wrinkle in Time. Sometimes yeah. you need to take take a step back from what you want to do with the material and let the material be the focus, and then you supplement it with creative ways to bring it to the screen. But you don't over you don't supersede what made it great in the first place. That was almost that's it's an interesting example though with the Wrinkle in Time because that the book is really good, but it's almost an unfilmable book. How how could you honestly yeah. if you know the book how could you really film it and get all that captured in a way that works? Well, they said the Lord of the Rings couldn't be filmed. There's truth. Well, they said the Dark Tower couldn't be filmed, and they tried it, and well, it didn't really work out so well. But if you there do, are hit and miss examples. There's, yeah. there, I think there's ways you can do it. But I mean, also the Hobbit. You know, they did such a good thing with Lord of the Rings, didn't quite do it, and they pretty much had everybody who did Lord of the Rings come back to do the Hobbit, and it didn't quite work so well. So sometimes you can capture lightning in a bottle, but I mean, you just, just. Every little wrinkle in time. I don't know what they could have done differently to make it a better movie. Whether you believe Oprah is a magical pixie fairy or you don't. Oh, it's I, just... I think they got too caught up in themes yeah, rather think... than getting caught up in dialogue and caught up in development. And they got caught up in themes and visuals yeah. rather than depth. If they could find, if they could try to keep, I think I could tell what they were trying to do. But again, it's almost unfilmable to try to really recapture the book. So if we can take an essence of the book and try to put a spotlight on that, I think that's what they tried to do. But again, it's all but unfilmable because if you do that, then you leave out this and it's almost too much. I don't think there's some things you just can't film. Uh, Gatsby, I don't think is one of them, but you know, I think the style with it is personal opinion. I personally don't mind it. I could have lived without it. I prefer the Robert Redford version. Right. Um, the book itself is a pretty good read. It's not a long read, but could you ever do Catcher in the Rye, for example? I mean, that's a great classic literature book but is it filmable really it'd be i've never seen an adaption of it and i think that's probably why i think that's a good place to stop yeah we'll come up with new fix-it ideas for the future We're done. as well <laughs> hey that was that was a good round though we got some really really creative ideas some that are more fanciful or thoughtful others ones that maybe could be really implemented here in the modern day, and that's part of the fun of this. One quick reminder, we're coming up to the late end of summer here. This is where you start running into a lot of alternative shows. You're still going to get some bigger ones like Mission Impossible's coming out here probably about the time this podcast is online. Um, but you got a lot of interesting shows. That a lot of the tentpole movies are done by August, and you still got movies coming into the theater. This might be a good time to go check out some of those. And you want a good romantic comedy that's a little different than the norm, The Spy Who Dumped Me. You got uh, Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon. That might be something fun. I don't know if I'd qualify it as a romantic comedy, but it'd be kind of like that. Um, action comedy. Yeah, action, yeah. action girl buddy comedy. Um, there's going to be a lot of hidden gems in the in the August months. And as we approach fall, you start getting into more critical fare and even some bigger ones. The Predator is coming out, too, and you've got others. Um, this is a good time to go out to the theater, and you can get away from some of the tentpole movies and find some of those more acclaimy type films, if that's a real word. And the more you go to see those, the more of those they'll make. So if you complain that everything now is superheroes, Go see good-looking movies that don't involve superheroes, and you might see more non-superhero movies. When the bubble bursts at some point, there will be something to fall back on. We've encouraged that before. Just a reminder. And it's worth revisiting again. Great point, Dave. 
I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you at the movies.